awesome roadmap, lots of cool features. Have you thought about the opportunity cost? You know, how are we growing our audience for our games, especially games that are 10 years old? How are we satisfying or ideally oversatisfying our most loyal players? Who's your core player? Who's gonna play your game every day? Who's gonna play it first thing when they wake up? Who's gonna play it like last thing before they go to bed? Figure that out first. If you can't win with those people, if there are not enough of them in market to support your game or your feature, you should not make it. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Kuffel and I am here with Brett Novak, the CEO of Liquid and Grit. And today we are joined by Matt Penfield. Matt has worked in consumer insights for over 10 years, utilizing his expertise at top companies like Sony Entertainment, EA, and now is the vice president of consumer insights at Zynga. We chat about the importance of understanding how target audiences think, what they desire, and how that information should impact what features and games get released and when. We dive into Matt's time at Sony and EA and the invaluable experiences he gained while there, and also why VR is definitely not the future of gaming. All on this episode of Creators at Work. I think as I've run Liquid and Grit, one of the things that have come up is what do teams do on for their insights, right? Like how do they manage it? How do they structure it? How does it work? You know, how does it function with the product teams? And I really couldn't think of a better person to talk to about it than you with your experience at Yay in console, obviously in mobile too, and then now at Zynga. I mean, let's first just kick off a little bit of background. Like, I'm kind of curious how you ended up at landing at EA and then became the senior manager of Consumer Insights there. To answer that question, we have to go back in time to kind of post-college. When I started working in film, I did development work, which is really just code for like reading screenplays and figuring out if they're viable to produce, and then worked in production for James Cameron's production house. So I worked on Titanic, I worked on Dante's Peak, I worked on a bunch of television stuff. So I was in entertainment and then I went back to school and went to uh, an MBA program. And in the MBA program, I was like, "Mm, what do I do with this degree? And I talked to my uh, marketing professor and I was like, well, what can I do with marketing? Because it seems kind of interesting. And he said, uh, what do you want to do? So he was very Socratic <laughs> in all of his conversations. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> always, what would you like to do? I'm like, I don't know. I, I mean, I worked in film. I liked film, but it was very unpredictable. Entertainment is fascinating to me as a category. However, it's so hit driven and work on the production side is so up and down, meaning that, you know, you work on a project for six months, nine months, and then you, you lose your job you're guaranteed effectively to lose your job at some point. So that is challenging professionally for me. And he said, well, if you like entertainment and you like, you know, games and toys, you should talk to a couple of people in my network. So I talked to some people in his network. I was very inspired by their experience and their journey from MBA to working at Hasbro or working at Activision. And I said, okay, it seems like this is a viable career path. Like I could work in games. So what do I do now? And he said, well, I have some people in my Rolodex that I can connect you to who might be able to give you an internship. 
So I got an internship at Sony in their online entertainment division and did a project and got a job working for Sony Online. On EverQuest, also worked on Star Wars Galaxies, also worked on a bunch of their other platform and free-to-play titles. Foundationally, what we were doing when I was at Sony Online was like 10, 15, 20 years in the future for business modeling in, in gaming. It was an intersection of subscription-based content, live service content, IAP, game within a game. Um, on EverQuest, one of the bigger projects I worked on was the integration of a card collection game within the main MMO game, right? Which was an IAP expansion that was integrated into the main code base. Like some of this stuff was insanely complicated and future-looking business and product strategy integration, which at the time I didn't appreciate very much, but it gave me this foundational exposure to all of these different aspects of business opportunity and marketing strategy and product strategy that I still use today. And what I found during that tenure that I had at Sony Online was that I was hired in as a associate brand manager and I was really terrible at marketing. Like I just, I didn't like it and I was really bad at it. So <laughs> they kept me on because, I mean, I don't know. I hopefully they kept me on because they thought that I was good at some things, but like objectively in hindsight, I was pretty terrible at marketing. <laughs> what I was really interested in though and good at and spent a lot of time on was consumer strategy and the intersection of what are we making and why do we think that it's valuable to our players and how do we sell it? for kind of maximum utility, right? Not just maximum revenue, which is easy, but maximum utility that promotes longevity and doesn't cannibalize subscriptions, right? Doesn't cannibalize across titles. I got to work with these huge brands. I got to work on Star Wars. We launched an, a new game that was kind of targeted down market at kids, at tweens. Uh, I got to work on these kind of durable franchises that even though I didn't really know what I was doing, I couldn't break them. Like I couldn't break EverQuest, right? Like it yeah. had already been broken at that point by World of Warcraft. So there wasn't that much I could do to, to truly damage it. This gave me such an incredible opportunity, dude. Shout out John Smedley for really understanding what it was that I was good at and interested in. And that turned out to be consumer insights. Like what I found out later was an actual job that people got paid for. So a guy who had been at Sony before me, Rob Liguri, who now is the head of NPD's video game unit, went to EA to do a consumer insights role. And after about a year and a half, he got promoted and he called me up and was like, hey, do you want to come up and interview for my old job? And I was like, oh, tell me what it is. And he told me what it was. He's like, you're going to be doing consumer focused research and it's going to be on Battlefield. It's going to be on Mass Effect. It's going to be on Dragon Age, new titles, exposure that you're not getting right now because you're primarily PC and, and you're really in this niche MMO category. And I was like, that sounds cool. So I came up, I interviewed, got the job. That's when I got a crash course in enterprise video game business frameworks and all of the considerations that you have when you're not just making a game for 100,000 people, you're making it for, you know, 100 million, 200 million, a billion people. Awesome start <laughs> right off the bat, Matt, first of all. But the thing that came to mind while you were telling the story, I mean, a bunch of stuff, but one of them was, well, how do you think or why do you think Sony was so advanced at that time? So credit to the studio leadership, you know, 
Smed is a super smart dude who loves to play games and is not married to convention. So mm-hmm. he, in my experience working with him, he was very, very good at understanding what we now consider to be, I think, a standard business strategy, which is kind of hybridization or cross-pollination of genre and economy strategies, right? Product mm-hmm. strategies. So the idea that Playrix would identify an opportunity in the market that is the intersection between a building simulation experience and a match three puzzle experience and create a game called Gardenscapes that goes on to make billions of dollars. That was the type of kind of intuitive foresight that I think John had. Because the business was kind of small relative to all of Sony's other businesses, I think he had a lot of freedom to legislate creative investment around those opportunities that he saw. I, I want to give credit where credit's due. I think he was a good leader and had good vision. I also think that some of this was born out of necessity. Sony may not have pioneered the MMO space necessarily. I think Ultima Online can take credit for that, commercializing MMOs. But certainly EverQuest took it to the, the mass market, was a market leader for several years, and then like completely lost that market leadership to Blizzard. At that point, it was a necessity. I think to start to look for alternative business models and, and revenue opportunities just to continue to move forward. For me, what I really appreciate today is like being able to be there at that moment in time was really fundamental and, and a huge um, growth opportunity for me. It's one thing to come into a business when they're on top. And it's easy, I think, to, to tell yourself when you come into a business that's on top that it's because you're so good collectively as a, as a business unit. It's another thing to come in after you've been on top and now you're kind of clawing your way forward to try and figure out what's next. That is where I have learned the most and really benefited the most from those experiences. What are some of the things that you took away from when you left Sony that you were like, okay, these are the things that they taught me. These are the things I'm going to carry on to EA. I think the most fundamental lesson I learned from Sony was that customers really, really matter and The art of interpreting customer feedback is finding the signal from the majority of your player base about the things that matter the most to them and balancing that against business requirements. And and what I mean specifically by that, because that's like such a hand-wavy bullshit answer, (laughs) what I mean specifically by that is like... I wasn't going to let it go, don't worry. Yeah, there's always going to be a vocal minority of your player base who are unhappy about a content change or a pricing change or a business decision that you're making. And understanding their concerns is critical. You can't dismiss them, you can't ignore them, but you need to spend the time to understand them and also understand how significant their concerns are relative to the rest of your active customer base. And I think that's what I learned at Sony was don't let the vocal minority shape every decision you make about the business and don't overcorrect against a vocal minority perception where you ignore them because frequently they are the canary in the business coal mine, right? Like they are so close to the experience that they're your first and best line of feedback. And so it really, it primed me for an understanding of the the player base and the audience base for franchises like Mass Effect, for franchises like Battlefield that had that incredibly sophisticated and knowledgeable and passionate 
player base and, you know, an opportunity in the marketplace to bring these incredible gaming experiences and franchises to more people. How do we get more people involved in this game? Because this game is awesome and this series is awesome and this franchise is awesome. And how do we stay true to the core fans who have supported us and, and gotten us to the place that we are right now in the marketplace? And so for me, that was the lesson at, at Sony was understanding that that tension existed and developing strategies and tactics to collect information and make good business decisions that satisfied or delighted, but absolutely didn't alienate either of those audiences. That's such a difficult problem. We talked about this on Eddie's podcast, Eddie LeBreton, who was yeah. the PM at Zynga Poker, and I know work with you. And we can talk about that when we get to the to Zynga stuff. But it sounded like when we talked to him that you guys did an excellent job in that case, where you listened to players specifically talk about how they wanted more coins, which when I was a lead revenue PM, that's what they said all the time. And at that time, when I was there, we kind of dismissed it, right? It was like, yeah, of course, people want free stuff. You guys work to really go beyond the initial comment, which was like, what are they really saying here? And what can we do to acknowledge their comment? Oh, yeah. Just don't dismiss player feedback. Think about it critically and offer solutions. Even if the solutions aren't universal or are insufficient for certain segments of your player population, I think, number one, you do get credit for effort. And number two, even if the solution is imperfect this time, it's going to move you closer to a better understanding of the pain points that players are experiencing, and you'll come up with better solutions. What I tell my partners all the time is, I don't have your solution. What I need from you is I need you to listen to what I'm telling you, and then come back to me with an elegant solution that doesn't break your business, but improves the lives of our players. That's not an easy request that I give to studio teams, but honestly, like I, I don't have a, a list of blueprints for every problem state that we can just look at and go like, oh, it's problem X, no problem, solution Y always fixes that, right? Like players are different, games are different. There's an evolution, certainly in the, in the marketplace that I've noticed in the last several years that is relevant to kind of this EA to Zynga transition. You know, I started at Zynga seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, and players were not extremely sophisticated on web games or on mobile games, certainly not to the degree of sophistication that I had been exposed to with kind of hardcore RPG players and shooter players, right? Like, and when I say sophisticated, what I really mean is not like smarter or better. What I mean is more in tune with and uh, possessing a deeper understanding of game design conventions and business mechanics. So very sophisticated players who understood, okay, well, these are the restrictions or these are the limitations that exist in Battlefield or in Mass Effect or in Need for Speed. Yet I see a developer over here, whether it's Rockstar, whether it's Activision, violating those conventions or overcoming those limitations. And so that resets my expectation for you as a brand that I have affinity for or have fallen in love with. The level of sophistication that existed at that point in console and, and on PC was pretty high relative to mobile and, and web. And today I would say they're at parity. The players that I talk to now, even players who demographically I would not expect to be 
so kind of sophisticated in their understanding of systems and, and design trade-offs. I'll go talk to retirees who will say, well, I played this game over here and their coin distribution system was way more efficient and fit my needs much better than your game. So why doesn't your game do that? And I'm like, you played that game? Like, when did you play? Okay, never mind. Tell me more yeah. about what right. you want, right? So that gap, I think, in consumer sophistication has closed. And because that gap has closed, it's increased the requirement that we take player feedback more seriously. We had to do that evolution at Zynga as well, just kind of catch up to where the marketplace was going and to the expectations and needs of our players. It never stops. You know, people are constantly innovating in, in gaming, and that's what makes it so fascinating and exciting and also so frustrating. It's really difficult to put aside $20 million for an investment that you're going to make in an idea and know that it's going to take two years to get the idea to market. And at that point, the market might change. And you just have to hope you're on the right side of that investment. This is something that we talk about a fair amount in our reports is this rate of sophistication of the player and being able to match that is so difficult because I mean, I always talk about the new user experience, right? When we first came out mobile games, like every single one of them had a super lengthy explanation of how to play bingo, how to play slots, how to play whatever game you're playing. And now it's like, well, how many players are you really going to get in bingo that haven't played a bingo game, right? On the more complex side, it's actually a huge opportunity because as games get more complex, even casual games generally leads to more engaging, higher retention, higher monetizing features. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity, but it is such a difficult thing. How do you think that you adjust that rate or understand the player's sophistication? I think that there are best practices that you can observe as... Uh, someone in any individual who works in gaming or who's interested about gaming. Number one, I, I think you have identified as a market opportunity yourself, which is track new entrants and assign them success criteria. And once they achieve a threshold of success, do a deeper investigation about what you believe contributes to that success, right? So Zynga has a culture of this historically of PM culture, product management culture, that involves competitive analysis and feature and product teardown and a very, very close examination of what I think about as the three key elements of any successful consumer product, which are acquisition, engagement, and monetization. So I think that's where I would start is what's in market right now and succeeding, whatever we think succeeding is, whether it's growth of user base or growth of revenue stack or just long-term engagement or brand affinity. And why do we believe that it is successful? And do we believe that there is an opportunity to improve on the hypotheses that that product has and, and the execution that that product has in market? Or do we believe that, you know, that insight leads us to um, adjacent investment opportunities, right? So you, you see a business model that's extremely effective or a design model that's extremely effective. Another really relevant example for this that I looked at in the last year was CoinMaster, right? Like slots is a really static design category. The idea that a new entrant could come into that market and absolutely just dominate market share and revenue share was very interesting intellectually and, and also from a kind of a strategic intelligence perspective on the business side. And so really looking at that game and trying to figure out like, okay, what was it? What's the secret ingredient here that, that made this game so appealing and so successful? 
what I like to do whenever I'm, I'm considering that is I like to isolate some of the factors that I kind of don't care about or I have the luxury not to care about, right? So I have the luxury in my role and, and I think we have the luxury at Zynga to actually not care that much about cost of acquisition. Theoretically, if we identified an opportunity that would have sufficient return, we could spend an infinite amount of money on acquisition. So I don't care about that necessarily. And that's liberating because then that means mm -hmm. that I don't have to worry about pennies on acquisition. What I can worry about is like, okay, but what is it about this game design or this category entrant that's so interesting? So we do a really great job at Zynga historically and kind of in our DNA at looking at the game elements themselves, right? The, and even the business model design elements within the game. When I started at Zynga, what we did a terrible job at, sorry, not sorry, Zynga, seven years ago, but like we did a terrible job at understanding players. There was no, no internal rubric for who is playing our game and what do we know about them and why do they matter and how do we kind of consider them in our business decisions outside of this, you know, massive treasure trove we had of kind of Facebook demographic data combined with behavioral data that was anchored against business outcomes. D-Business speak that. We had player profiles from Facebook, so we knew age bands, we knew where you lived, we knew how many pets you had, we knew a lot of things about you as a person. And then we had kind of internal performance data where we could say, oh, and you're worth this much money to us. At scale, we could put a feature in a game, and if the people who are worth a lot of money to us all fit within a demographic category, we could make some like directional decisions. And when I joined, was shortly after Facebook had prevented external development partners from having perfect transparency into user identity. And so there was a lot of blindness where there, there had previously been understanding. And there was a, a strategic initiative underway to um, diversify platforms, so to move from web to mobile. So we didn't know anything about mobile players at all. The really interesting thing that I did for the first year, year and a half was really just go around to teams and say, hey, do you want to know more about your players? And the teams who said yes, I did projects with. And the teams who said no, I said, okay, good luck. Let me know how it goes. Like, <laughs> spoiler, it did not go well. But the teams that, that were successful were the teams who said, okay, yeah, I, I don't know anything about mobile and I really don't know anything about the mobile customers. So can you help? We figure out how we how we get that information. And I give a lot of credit to organizations like the Zynga Slots Casino organization, where there was a pre-existing understanding of the value of customer segments that was kind of embedded in that business culture. It was helpful because they had a understand, an understanding of like you have VIPs and then you have people who pay but maybe aren't a classic VIP. And then you have kind of an audience who is going to participate in the experience but maybe never pay. And so they already knew that a really important method that would supplement this idea of like competitive deconstructs on different games and different features was an understanding of the audience. You know, what I found is that over time, the need to understand players, I wouldn't say it's like at an equivalent level of importance or significance as the need to understand competitive business models and successful features in market, but it's pretty close, right? And one of the ways that, you know, I reinforce this in my daily conversations with my internal partners is, yeah, dude, that's an awesome roadmap, lots of cool features. Who are they for? 
I just need to know, like, who are they for? And it's okay if if they're only for 1% of your audience that pays us five figures every year, that's awesome. What I need to understand is have you thought about who we're making them for? And then have you thought about the opportunity cost relative to everyone else that we could be making features for? And that, Brett, gets back to your observation about Fatui, right? First time user experience and Ratui returning user experience and you know how are we growing our audience for our games especially games that are 10 years old and how are we satisfying or ideally over satisfying our most loyal players the players who've played for 10 years so the first step for me is always like okay who's the audience what do they want how do we break them into conceptual groups that have value to the business and then what are we doing with our resources to satisfy those groups it's really been an evolution, right? Because I started, there was nothing, you know, I may have introduced a lot of ideas that were needlessly complicated. And now we've gotten to a point where they're simplified and standardized and part of the game development process, which, you know, if you're a player of games, I hope it is reassuring to you to hear that you are the first thing that I think of every morning when I wake up and the last thing that I think of when I go to bed at night. And my job is to remind everyone at our company that that is the most important thing for their game. So, you know, there are people in the industry who care more than anything about customers. I'd love to go back to back in time to the, the middle part of your career when you jumped from Sony and now we're at EA and you get into this yeah, billions of billions of people playing the game, billions of dollars is these massive games. Can you go back to that that part of your career and oh talk my God. about things that you was learned? so it was so amazing. Like uh, trying to think about how to sum up that three and a half, four years in, in sound bites and the people that I started working with, even in my first day at EA. I went into meetings and I was used to a small company that had very kind of clearly defined roles that were delineated pretty aggressively. Like as a marketer, it was not my job to ever talk about product strategy. As a marketer, it was not my job to ever talk about business strategy necessarily beyond ROI on marketing spend. Like, you know, it, it was matrixed pretty heavily and that was the culture at Sony and that was what had made them successful. And I went to EA and I went to my first meeting, which I think was like a Battlefield 2 meeting. There were community managers in there asking very aggressive and intelligent questions about business model strategy. And there were, you know, online marketers who were asking questions about content strategy. And I was just like, whoa, this is a completely different world. The, the caliber of employee is extremely high on kind of business intelligence. And also, I guess it's okay to say things that aren't your job and ask questions. You know, for me, that is a double-edged sword because I have a lot of opinions and sometimes I can get really far out of my swim lane and have to be reined in pretty directly, but it was very liberating. What I found was that I was working with a lot of people who were really smart and had been working in games for decades at that point, you know, and Frank was my manager's manager's manager. And, you know, I had kind of this reporting line that I had enough 
peripheral exposure to the business leaders at the company that I could watch and learn and not so much direct interaction that my mistakes made me look bad. And so I really existed in this great little cocoon where I figured out, oh, I need to focus on the data that I'm collecting from players and I need to develop partners within this company across these business lines who are interested in what I am doing to improve their own business decisions. And sometimes those partners were in marketing, which is the function that Consumer Insights lived in at AEA. Sometimes they were in publishing. Sometimes they were on the studio side. And again, I gave this example earlier when I first came to Zynga. Here's my job. This is what I have to give you. Do you want it? Yes or no? And I learned all of that at EA. Like there are always people who want nothing to do with the information that I collect and provide, and that's okay. And so finding partners was the most important business practice that I developed. The second most important business practice that I developed and also that, that applies at Zynga was identifying transferable insights, right? So even though I didn't necessarily work hundred uh, percent of my time on battlefield games, what I got really good at was hearing consumer trends or seeing consumer trends either in market data or in survey data or in focus group conversations. And I was like, oh man, we just did you know a week in Europe on Need for Speed and 90% of the work that we did on Need for Speed, everyone already knows it's really, there's 10% here that's, that's valuable and useful, but there are five or six key insights about the Need for Speed audience that are very, very relevant to Battlefield 3 development. The expectations that this audience has for gaming content that they will experience and pay for is important for the Battlefield team to know about. So I'm gonna take the excerpt of those relevant insights and I'm gonna give it to the Battlefield team. I started doing that and became kind of a rigorous business practice that just because I'm working on Dragon Age 2 doesn't mean that I'm not gonna share that information where relevant with every other person at the company. Insights aren't a secret. This is information that the company has paid for and everyone at the company within reason should have access to because it helps us understand players and marketplace better and it's gonna help us make better games. Respect to EA because EA, in my experience, is not afraid to invest in the future. If there's a good idea that they believe will create value, they will invest in it and they will keep trying until they get it right. They are very persistent about coming back to ideas that other companies, I, I've seen them try and abandon, try and abandon, try and abandon. Mm -hmm. And EA is very good about like, mm, there's something there. We got a whole new batch of people in, like, let's try it again. And they keep trying until they get it right. I'll give you the example that's happening right now, like as we're having this podcast that I logged into FIFA today. So I'm a whale, played FIFA my whole life for 25 years. I was at EA whenever we kind of switched, first introduced the ultimate team concept. So ultimate team, like the, the log line on ultimate team is you collect cards through playing the game or buying card packs through gotcha and you assemble a team of players and you complete challenges and then you claim more coins or you spend more money and you get more card packs and you get more players, right? So it's a virtuous engagement and, and revenue cycle that has its own economy. You can trade the cards back. Really incredibly ambitious investment. And you know it's no secret that it's responsible for the bulk of their revenue annually. It's more than a feature, right? It's their single most valuable business entity. I logged in today at the start of a new like 
season, which is their battle pass equivalent in FIFA, and their gotcha packs are now preview packs, meaning that yesterday when I logged in, I had to make a decision about which gotcha pack I wanted to buy at which price point and whether I paid for it with real money or I paid for it with coins that I had earned in game. Today I logged in and I can click a button on the gotcha pack and it shows me what's in the pack. And then I make a decision about whether I buy the pack. And if I decide to buy the pack, I get everything that was in the pack, and then I can make a decision about the next pack. If I decide not to buy the pack, there's a timer. In some cases, the timer was 24 hours. In some cases, it was 30 minutes. In some cases, it was 60 minutes. And I would have to wait to see what was in the next pack. Now, I'm thinking that I must be in an experiment variant where they have disabled access to real money because I can no longer purchase real money currency which is bananas. I spend probably $10,000 a year on Ultimate Team. They're basically saying like, that's cool, but we don't need you to do that right now. It's more <laughs> important to us to solve this problem that we have with regulation, right? We're being regulated out of countries where we have a pretty substantial install footprint. And also we need to future-proof our game design. We're gonna undertake this like super radical experiment in a console game, live service console game, which I've never seen before, that allows us pricing and offer and duration experimentation variables that we're gonna put out to the entire population. Again, like I, hopefully we've covered EA at this point, but seriously, man, that is one great company with smart people that for all of the you know, periodic kind of challenges and, and heat they take in conversation about their business practice and some of their, their decisions that they make, like they are really, really thoughtful. So anyway, I take that stuff that I learned from EA, that idea of like, hey, how do I find my customers internally and how do they t I tell them about their customers externally? By the way, some of their customers externally might also have insights that apply to these games over here. So how do I make sure that I'm kind of always listening for information that's relevant, not just to the customers that are paying me for this project, but also for the people who are working on games and development or, you know, the studios that we've just acquired who may not be fully integrated. The other lesson that I took away from EA is that insights without operational application are kind of useless, right? So like my bias is to get very abstract and like academic. Like, wouldn't it be perfect if we had this, you know, experiment design and that is useful for a few minutes and then I need to get out of that daydream and into a, okay, but it's not possible. So what is possible and what is going to have the most impact and benefit to players and to business? And let's design that experiment with the understanding that maybe someday, like, you know, there will be machine learning integration that's perfect. And free of human bias and algorithm design. And there will be perfect, you know, demographic, psychographic and behavioral matching insight. Like, sure, maybe someday we'll have this perfect world where everyone knows everything and can make perfect decisions. But like that, that's not where we live. We live in a world where things cost money and they take time and we need to do our best. The mantra that I try to use is like, no surprises, please. Please do not surprise me. So team, my team, when you're going out and you're doing work, Make sure that when I go and I have a meeting with Frank or I have a meeting with, you know, the executive team on this game, that there are no surprises for them. We, we need to be able to tell them like, hey, here's what's going to happen. And 
you know, maybe there's some edge cases in there that could happen or, or might happen, but I want to give them as comprehensive a, an outlook on the state of the business opportunity as possible so that three months from now when we meet again, it's not like, whoops, missed that one. There's been games where I've told Frank, I'm like, I swear to you, if I had all the money at this company, I would bet on this game. And he, you know, thankfully has not taken me up on that because I've been wrong. It's been uncomfortable. And sometimes it's just imperfect information. And sometimes it's the market changes, a market evolution that happens over the, the two years that a game's in development. And like you were, you know, Brett, you were talking earlier about kind of this idea of a North Star. Like what's your North Star for this game at the point in time that you're beginning or this business? You know, your location shifts relative to the rest of the world and you can lose the North Star. Or there, there's a new North Star. The category changes or the needs of the customer change. And that's really, really unfortunate and painful when that happens, but sometimes it happens. I think with that North Star concept, you definitely have to be careful about it. And I think the best example of it is with, they talk about Bezos saying, I, I'm 100% sure my customers are going to want their items less expensive and faster to them. Those are North Stars that you can double down on and yeah. reinvest over and over again and get wrong. I feel like North Stars inaccurately or dangerously used when it's some kind of fly in the wall quarterly thing right like well we think that players are gonna want leaderboards you know it's like that's a north star that i wouldn't bet the farm on right because you like this industry just changes so quickly that if you bet everything on that it's like i don't know and for ea is a perfect example and i actually used to talk about this with the regulation because i was asked a lot they were like well are you concerned i'm like you gotta understand that this industry is so quick to change that if a regulation gets dropped, they'll figure out a solution. We already saw it with Fortnite at the time. I was like, look, at here's this game. It, it's free and they're making tons of money. Now there were you know, yeah. some gotcha type mechanics in there, but they didn't really need it. It was basically cosmetic based, right? Fortnite is free to play. It seems like the mobile gaming industry and console gaming industry are colliding. They have been for a while, but I think recently Fortnite, because of the whole Apple Fortnite battle release that Fortnite generates 75% of their revenue from Xbox and PlayStation, which I think was a big eye opener for a lot of mobile gaming companies, right? That were looking at this number and saying, wait a minute, because the trend has been console going to mobile. This graph, and I put it in our research, this pie chart for Fortnite, I think is going to trigger the opposite effect where it's going to go the other way. And I used to say this to the slots guys, why hasn't Zynga gone console in the RMG? Why is it the other way around? And because there's tons of money there. In this instance, though, we're talking about mobile going console. I'd love to get your take on this, considering your background at EA and Zynga. Just the business philosophy that I, I think we have at Zynga, and it's similar to the one we had at, at EA, which was, you know, we're platform agnostic. We want to go where players are. And if the players are on console, we want to be on console. And if the players are in the cloud, we want to be in the cloud. And if the players are on, you know, I don't know what, like, Samsung refrigerators, then awesome. Like, let's meet them there. Point being about where's the future. So here's where I don't think the future is, at least the near-term future. I do not think it's in VR. So let me just throw that out like right away. I because love I'm sure it, that, That's going to be like, tons of people are like, what? Uh, and I mean, I've talked to Facebook. I've talked to Amazon. I've talked to like, you know, you know this, Brett, as a vendor and, and certainly as a kind of, an executive in, in research and entertainment research, like I spend a lot of time talking to peers informally. And I get that these companies are making like multi-billion dollar bets against that space. And I don't think gaming is 
gonna be what cracks that space open. It's gonna be retail, maybe lifestyle, but it's not gaming, I don't think, not in the near term. However, I do think cloud is the future. And like part of the reason I got excited when, when we were gonna talk about that, and we could have spent a full hour on it, is it's fascinating to me that Microsoft looks like they're taking a pass on this whole console generation. Like they don't care that they're probably going to lose on retail sales or install footprint because they're trying to win like the next 15 years by getting to cloud first and having that full ecosystem integration and connection like designed in a way that their experience that they're providing to every consumer who has uh, a live account login means that no matter where you are and no matter what device you have, you can access your content. It is the next frontier. The next evolution of that idea is not just like, hey man, which EA games do you wish that you could, when you're at your PC, play for a subscription? It's like, hey, what if I told you that you can play games or work on your documents or have meetings or do anything that you wanna do from a, a screen any time, anywhere. Would you be into that? And some people yeah. will say, no, I want to, you know, I want to manage my life. I want to break up my activities. I want to have separation. But for entertainment, I think the answer is always yes. Um, and, and so as I've been beta testing xCloud, like I can't play Ultimate Team, FIFA Ultimate Team, while I'm in line at the post office yet. <laughs> but I can get into the screen and yeah. I can see my players and I can spend money and I can like get ready for the next thing I do. And the only reason that I can't play the way that I would play in front of my TV or on my laptop is because of network latency and kind of like infrastructure. The service, I think the service it will be there when the network infrastructure catches up. And that is going to be transformational again, right? So, so I think for any company that's in games, thinking just about like, what does your game look like on this or on this? And for those of you who are listening, I'm holding my hand like it's a phone and staring at it. Um, <laughs> you, shouldn't, you shouldn't let yourself be restricted by that outlook anymore. You should think about like, okay, that may be cool for people who have that device with them, but then what does it look like when they're sitting down in front of an 80 inch plasma? Or what does it look like when they're on their laptop? and they want to take a break. Like the entertainment experience is going to transcend device and it's going to transcend platform. I'm going to take it one step forward. I want to add to it because I'm going to add to where your prediction. I think the players, the, the games that are going to win aren't going to just put that game on their platform. They're going to take elements of their game and make it ideal for that platform. So when you're standing in line, you're just collecting your cards for ultimate, right? You're You're likely not to play FIFA, but you're likely to interact with FIFA. Yeah. You can, and you can translate to, to everything. You could get a text message about it, right? You could get a notification. You can get all these different platforms and have different elements of the game that you're interacting with in the, in the real world or whatever it is. Um, the other quick thing is I, I'm going to agree with you on VR. If you put on a VR headset, it's always in a very controlled experience. And that's because it is extremely difficult to solve some of these problems that are going to take so long. For yeah. example, if you lift your hand, your brain thinks it's going to see your hand. If you don't see your hand, your brain wigs out and doesn't like the experience. That is an extremely difficult problem to solve. Progress is not linear and people always think of it as linear. So they think, oh, zero to 80 took 
two years, 80 to 100% is gonna take much less time. Progress is much more like this. And with VR, that final like 10% is gonna take a long, long time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And thanks again to Matt for coming on to the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this one for you. So until then, here's a little something to close us out. Pink has always played that role for us. He would come in and be like, why aren't we in Starbucks? That guy can see around corners. Yeah, he'd come into meetings and he'd be like, I don't understand. This is what I see. Look, I know this guy is a smart dude and I also know that he's not reading my focus group reports and yet what he's saying is verbatim what I'm hearing out of this kind of elite population that in my readout as a consumer insights lead I'm saying like this is like a two or three year forward look that this group is asking for and there's Pincus walking in like off the top of his head he's just this has been bothering him for a couple days now and he's tying into this need that exists in the marketplace intuitively.